60-40 balanced portfolio in 2007, if somebody had hopped on a boat and sailed around the world for a couple years, they would have come back in 2010, opened up their brokerage statement, and thought that nothing happened and it had been a dull market. Right? And I think that speaks to a couple things. It speaks to the importance of proper asset allocation, but it also speaks to the importance of time and perspective, is that if you have a portfolio that's allocated appropriately for your time horizon, market movements are going to come and go, but you're probably going to be okay. That's Brian Perry, CFP, CFA from Pure Financial Advisors. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, he recaps 2017's global Goldilocks economy. Will the bull run continue in 2018 or should we be preparing for a market slowdown? Am I properly allocated? What would Jim Cramer do and should I care? Plus, tax filing season is approaching and Big Al's Big Brain contains a whole bunch of stuff you need to know about the new tax law before you start working on those 1040s. Now, with the New Year's resolution to attempt to prepare for each episode of Your Money, Your Wealth in 2018, and likely failing, here are Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. Oh, the show is called what? Your Money, Your Wealth? It is, and I'm fairly excited today, Joe, because this is our first show in 2018. And you know what that means? That means it's time to think about New Year's resolutions. Have you got yours? Have you thought about yours? You, you've been working on it no. over the break? Over the, yes, of course. What do you, what do you got? Well, I, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll start out with, uh, I've got the, the most common New Year's resolutions for 2018, according to YouGov, Y-O-U-G-O-V. What's that all about? Uh, I don't know what they're about. But Is they, it a government site? Uh, I don't think so. Oh. <laughs> Anyway, so here's what they say. There's three tied at the top. 37% of the people put this in one of their top resolutions. Uh, They are eat healthier, get more exercise, and save more money. So you could sort of predict those, right? Right. Then after that, focus on self-care, 24%, such as getting more sleep. Uh, 18% want to read more. 15% want to make new friends. Uh, also, 15% want to learn a new skill. Uh, 14% want a new job. They're just they're sick of their job. All right. Right? And then 13% want to take up a new hobby. And it turns out uh, 32% don't plan on making resolutions. So about a third of us don't make resolutions. About two-thirds of us do. So are you the kind of person that makes them or no? Or... No, I think about it. You think about it? Yeah. Yeah. But I don't necessarily get serious about it. And you don't write, write them down no, and chart out the progress? Chart, yeah, no. Yeah, see, how, see if you're on goal. But no. You know, there's, I've seen so many different like quadrants of, all right, well, I want to focus on health, and then the other one is spirituality, right. and I want to work on career. Right. So... Well, we know we know that the the getting fit exercise is a common one, and we also know that you and I both have gym memberships, and we know in the first couple of weeks of January it's packed, packed, and then it tapers off, and by middle of February it's back to normal. Well, the, the problem is, is that you, 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 they get all people get super excited. Sure, oh, I'm going to lose weight, or I'm going to get in shape, or get a six pack. Yeah, right, and then they overdo it that first week, and they blow themselves up. Right. Right. And it's like they're sore. They don't know what they're doing. And, the, and it's like their bodies are broken. Right. It, I, I think that's true with saving, too. Is right. All right, well, here, I'm going to max out my 401k plan. They've never maxed out their 401k plan yeah. in their life. They never that even first have. paycheck comes through, and they're like, I don't have any money. This sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I got to use my credit card yeah, to, yeah, right. to I, pay I, the bills. It, yeah, this is not working out for me. Right. They, so, go, they, go, too, they go in too deep. And, and I was just reading. I should have printed it, but it, it was, it was right, on, right on point, which is a psychologist was recommending, come up with resolutions that you can actually follow through on. Because that's what everyone does. They, they do something so gigantic that what, there's I mean, no way that they're going to be able to, to do it. Like smart goals. Have you heard of that? Like, no, but that sounds specific, cool. specific. Yeah. Measurable. Yeah, right. Achievable. Yeah, like maybe you want to lose one pound of, per week. Per week. Yeah. Right? That's healthy. That, that'd be 52 per year. That'd be a lot. <laughs> that, that's right? good. Yeah, so you probably don't have to do that much. But, but instead of, I'm going to lose 10 pounds by Wednesday. Right. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Well, I, I think sometimes people can lose that much weight, but they're probably very overweight to begin with. Right, yes. And, so that might motivate them. But then right. after that, then they plateau for yeah. two months. And... Gosh, I only lost one pound this week, and uh, right. I, I gained a pound yeah. the following week. Right. Yeah. 
So I don't know now. Yeah, I, I think it's good to start the 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 year fresh. Yeah, I, I do too. And I I guess I'm the kind of person I have done resolutions before. I didn't really do any specific ones this year. And the, my reason for that, Joe, is that I'm I'm trying to do things all throughout the year. So it's not just at at the start of the year. I mean, for example, right at any one period of time, I got several things going on. Like right now. I'm learning Spanish, which I learned a bit last year, and then I put it down, but I'm getting back into it because I'm going to Chile in February, and they speak Spanish down there. I like your accent there, yeah, too. Yeah, Ch- Chile, yes, <laughs> right? <laughs> Been working on it. Yeah, yeah. Hooked, I, on, hooked on phonics. Yeah, yeah. Soy de San Diego. Got it. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, um, and I'm, uh, I'm getting back into guitar. Ryan is at home right now for a, a year of study. Uh, and so he's really good at guitar. I, I mean, I'm I've been playing guitar longer than he was born, but he's now surpassed me. So I'm taking lessons from my son. So I'm getting back into guitar, and of course, uh, I've got fitness goals. But I always have fitness goals, and and I, I eating. I want to eat more healthy. Which I I had a couple weeks before Thanksgiving where I tried something new. It was it was pretty much veg, vegetable based with with a few lean meats, proteins. And I really did feel a lot better. And then Thanksgiving hit, and then I got sick, and then Christmas. And so it's like, okay, now it's time to get back on that thing again. Vegetables, just greens. Greens, yeah, all kinds of vegetables. Oh, you're just going to live forever. So, right. I'm supposed to to live to 120, they say. (laughs) You look like you're 30, so you're on your way. (laughs) I'll, I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah. So anyway, that I guess that's how I do it. I, I I will I always throughout the year have different things going that I'm working on, and uh, and I think that's healthy. But I but by the same token, Joe, I do think one of the things I like about the New Year's weekend. I actually don't necessarily care for the New Year's parties. It's not really my deal. But I was in bed before ten myself. But um, but what I do like about it is unlike Christmas, which is wonderful and. Fun-filled family, all kinds of activities. There's not that much to do over New Year's, and you can kind of relax and reflect, reflect upon what happened last year, what you'd like to do differently in the coming year, and so. And I always, I always do my Clopine Financial, financial Summit. summit? Yeah, yeah, I have it. Chili's? Have it. <laughs> <laughs> or was it Applebee's this year? I don't know what we're doing. It. <laughs> uh, but I haven't. Done, I I created. I I prepared some stuff. I haven't gone over it with Ann yet. Got it. But yeah, so I'm very excited. About so what it. do you do in your financial summit to help our listeners out here? Well, what I do is I um, I start with a um, simple spreadsheet. A, a, yeah, a statement of net worth, and so that's just simply. Uh, gathering up your assets and your liabilities, and then you compare that to prior years and, and see how you're coming. And in some years, I have a more detailed spending budget. I didn't really do that this year. We're, we're actually doing fine on the spending and saving. Uh, but this this is more of uh, uh, where we're at relative to where we've been the last few years and where we're going and what that means. So that that's kind of more what this is, I would say. So you don't put a... Um, you can't spend on this, or you know, we can't do this, or no. it's more of a pleasant it's, summit. Yeah, yeah, this is a pleasant. Oh, look this, at congratulations is, to us! We is, are so successful. <laughs> look at the big wallet on Big Al. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to need a bigger pat pocket for my wallet. It's so big. <laughs> yeah, that's what we do, and and um, and I'll 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 probably bring up thing. I already did bring up something which always happens in December. We spend too much. It's like all right, ring it in. So ring it in because uh, we, because we max out our four hundred one k before year end, and we we max out our social security before year end. So there's a few months where we have higher pay. Right. So you get used to that. Yeah. So it's like okay, now we're going back to. It's a little bit leaner. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a little bit different. A little bit leaner, so let's, let's make sure different. we're under control here. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, you know, it is the new year, and, and what most people do have, you know, getting their finances in order. And I think it's, to put it lightly, it's, it's extremely important because we've talked about it on this show that most people are so ill-prepared for retirement. Right. And it's looking at starting something. And then slowly, gradually, you know, adding to that, you know, specific goal. Right. It's not trying to, you know, lose 50 pounds in a month or, you know, get a million dollar net worth overnight. It's, it, it takes time. It takes patience. Yes. And it takes discipline. And you have to have a plan in place uh, to make sure that you do that. 
If getting your portfolio in shape wasn't already one of your New Year's resolutions, make that one now. You've probably been with the same stockbroker or financial advisor for years. But friendships aside, when's the last time you formally reviewed your portfolio? Are they actively managing it? Are you considering or having conversations about Social Security, taxes, health care, and Medicare? If not, you're missing some critical pieces of the retirement puzzle. And these things could make a profound difference in how far your money could go in retirement. We'll prove it to you with our financial assessment. We don't just talk about stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. We'll get into actionable strategies on how you can pay fewer taxes, how to wring every nickel out of your Social Security benefits, how and when to withdraw money from your retirement accounts, plus inflation, health care, Medicare, and so much more. We talk about how to make every dollar break a sweat and go further in retirement. Your initial analysis won't cost you a dime, so you've got nothing to lose. Make that financial New Year's resolution, and we'll help you stick to it. Call 888-994-6257. What you learn in our assessment process could change everything. Get yours right now. 888-994-6257. That's 888-994-6257. The IRS just announced that the tax filing season will begin on January 29th. So, Joe, I know you want to file your return this weekend, but you can't. I know you're an early bird. Yeah, no, I'm October. <laughs> all the way. October 15th. Yeah, I'm, I'm October so, 15th so and a half. The, and the, last year, they started their filing season on January 23rd. This year, it's January 29th. So what happens if I file my taxes, send it in? Well, they'll just... They won't do anything with it. You can't electronically file it yet, first of all. And Got if it. you mail it to them, they'll just put it in a bin, I guess, and wait till they, they get to it. And the reason they do that is, as you can imagine, and, and even this last tax act changed things for even 2017. Not a lot, but a few things like medical deductions or 7.5% uh, of adjusted gross income for 2017, where they were going to be 2010 for everybody, not just... Un, you know, over 65. So that's a ch- so there's things that they have to change and update and, and, and so that kind of thing. So that's why they don't accept returns earlier. But yeah, t- January 29th is your first filing date. And we get a couple extra days this year, April 17th, which is my birthday. Oh, no. That's the filing date this year. Because Be- another emancipation? Yeah, because April 15th is on Sunday and April 16th is the emancipation holiday for the District of Columbia on the 16th. So they can't possibly have tax season on that day. <laughs> of so course it's- not. The last few years, it it's seems always like it's been, been on the my 70, birthday, yeah. right? It's yeah. always, it seems like the last 10 years. <laughs> it's like tax season's finally done, so I can finally have a cocktail yeah. on my, late in the evening <laughs> on my birthday. So anyway, so that's, that's pretty good. But I, I guess alongside that, Joe, I wanted to talk about a mistake that we see people make. Uh, uh, this is a, a law change, I don't know, three years or so ago. And it's one that it's, can be a really big gotcha. And you want to be very careful when you're rolling over your retirement savings. Uh, because there's there's a couple ways to do it. There's a trustee to trustee transfer. That's the desired way because then nothing happens in terms of reporting. You don't get the money. It just goes from one IRA to another IRA, that type of thing. Uh, on the other hand, you can also do a, what's called a 60-day rollover, which is the IRA issues a check to you. You have it, and you have 60 days to put it into another IRA. You used to be able to do that with every single IRA. Let's say you have 10 IRA accounts. You could do a 60-day rollover with each account once a year. And now a few years ago, they said, you know what? No, you can only do one per year on all of your IRAs and Roth IRAs combined. So if you're moving money around and you do a 30-day, I mean a 60-day rollover, let's say in January, and then in, in March you decide to do another one, you do another 60-day rollover, well, that's fully taxable. That didn't used to be that way. Now it's fully taxable. So, uh, which me and and if it happens, there's no recourse. It just is what it is. It's fully taxable. If you're under 59 and a half, 10% penalty, plus fully taxable, you cannot put it back into the IRA. We see this problem often. The term rollover is common, right? All right, I leave my job, what do you do? Roll it over, right? You gotta hear that term. And so, all right, well, let's say I have an IRA. I need to roll this over into another IRA because I have my money at XYZ company, Fidelity, and I wanna move it to Schwab or vice versa. And it's like, all right, well, I'll just select rollover on the paperwork. 
Yeah. And then they get the check and they're like, okay, well, I'll just deposit I'll just it. deposit the IRA. No big deal. No big deal, right? No taxes due. No big deal. Yeah. And then they find out, oh, you know what? I really liked Fidelity a lot better than I did Schwab. So I'm going to roll it over again. Yeah, I'm going to move it. Oh, boom. Get another check. Yeah, get another check and then just deposit it. Then that would be a blow up, 100% taxable. So it's a million bucks. Well, yeah. you just added a million dollars to your ordinary income. You're in the top tax bracket plus... Like I say, 10% penalty if you're under 59 and a half, if you'll see the trustee to transfer. Yeah, transfer. Right, because it's made out to the custodian. If it was right. just made out, and if it's coming from a 401k plan, so we were talking about IRA to IRA, but if it comes from a 401k plan and you select rollover versus direct rollover, they automatically withhold 20% taxes. Uh, by law, 401k plans have to do that. So that's where you, you get a check. Correct. So in got your a, name, I got but it's 20% less than what right. you thought it was. I had $100,000. I, I asked for a rollover. I get a check for $80,000. Then I've got 60 days, and 20000 is withheld. Correct. And then I got 60 days to actually roll 100. So I better have another 20000 20, from in your some checking other account. source. So make sure you do direct rollover. Right. Yeah. And that happens, like rollover, direct rollover. Okay, I'm going to select rollover. How, how, how are we supposed to know this Right. Stuff? It's so crazy. <laughs> and so you get your check and you're like, hey, I thought I had 100000 The markets yeah. went down that much? Yeah. Or what, they charged me 20000 yeah, to do this? 20% fee to get out of this <laughs> what thing? What the hell is going on? Oh, they withheld the taxes. So you, now you got to make it whole. So you put the 80000 into the IRA and then you got to come up with the twenty to get it back to the 100000 in this example. Now, you then you get a refund right later you file. because you have the withholding. But what if you don't have twenty thousand? Then you just rolled over eighty, and so you have to pay tax on twenty thousand. Yep. Then you're yeah yeah. There's so well, no way around that. There's no way around it. And if you're under fifty nine and a half, ten percent penalty. penalty on the yeah. twenty grand that yeah. didn't go into the the account. Yeah. So w- when it comes to retirement accounts, when it comes to IRAs, four hundred one ks, four hundred three bs, there's so many different rules and laws and regulations that you want to make sure that you understand. You got Roth IRAs versus IRAs versus 401ks versus 457 plans. They all have a little bit different rules. So when a lot of people are retiring and when they're taking dollars from these accounts, you just want to make sure you know what you're doing because it could blow up. I mean, how many times have we seen people completely destroy their retirements just because of simple mistakes? Well, it it happens all the time. And I mean, just a simple one we we saw a few months ago is someone withdrew about $300,000 out of their IRA to pay off the mortgage. Right. Uh, And they had paid off their mortgage and they had no money that basically didn't full realize they'd have to pay tax on $300,000. Now, fortunately, they were able to do a quick refi to get that money back, to right. put it back into the IRA. But it's a good, good thing that they came to us within that 60-day period. Because they are like, well, I'm in the 15% tax bracket, so I'm going to pull my $300,000 out and I'll pay 15% tax. Right. It's, well, no. Now, now you're, you're now not you're in, in the 15% bracket. tax bracket, right? You're, you're up at near the top, brother. <laughs> yes, plus state and everything else. So you just want to be careful and make sure that you have a thought-out strategy in place. You probably don't believe you've got any control over paying taxes, right? But it's not true. In fact, you've got more control over how much you pay in taxes in retirement, more so than in any other time in your life. But your stockbroker, your financial advisor, even your tax preparer may not understand how to lower taxes in retirement because it's not their area of expertise. The only way to lower your taxes in retirement is by having a forward-looking, tax-efficient, well-thought-out strategy in place, like Joe was just talking about. Find out how you can legally pay fewer taxes than ever before with our new personalized tax reduction analysis. In this analysis, you'll discover techniques specifically designed just for you on forward-looking tax strategies keeping more of your hard-earned money in your pocket. There's no cost and no obligation, so you've really got nothing to lose. Get your complimentary personalized tax reduction analysis by calling 888-994-6257. That's 888-994-6257. You know, it's, it's the beginning of the year, and so we like to talk about the markets and sure. what happened in 2017. But this year, we, we got Brian Perry on the line. Brian is our director of research at Pure Financial, and he's also the managing director of San Diego. Brian, welcome to the show. This is the first time you've been on. It is. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, and uh, looking forward to a wonderful new year. Hey, well, let's let's dive in a little bit. Let's talk um, about 2017, some highlights, some lowlights of the overall markets. I mean, we had a really good year again. I mean, we're on this bull run. Is it ever going to stop? 
I wish I knew the answer to that. I'd love to give all the listeners the day and moment that it is going to stop and turn around. I, I don't have that. Um, you did mention highlights and lowlights. There honestly weren't a whole lot of lowlights in the last year. It was pretty much a straight run higher for most risky assets. So what, what were some of the uh, indexes? How did we do in 2017? Well, you know, U.S. stocks, if you look at the broadest measure, the Russell 3000, we were up about 21%. Uh, which sounds good until you take it in context of the rest of the globe, where there were approximately three dozen other countries that actually had stock markets that outperformed the U.S. So, you know, countries as diverse as Austria, Singapore, Poland, and Peru all did twice as better than as the U.S. Um, so, you know, and, and a lot of that had to do with just global growth. Back in um, October, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, raised the global economic outlook for 2017 and 2018. You had consumer confidence in Europe hitting a 17-year high. You had consumer confidence in the U.S. hitting a 13-year high. So really synchronized good news around the economy. Um, what in the 1990s people referred to as the Goldilocks economy in some ways. So back in the 1990s, we had an economy where you had strong economic growth, but it wasn't so strong that it prompted inflation. And in a lot of ways, we're in a similar environment now where we're seeing synchronized global growth, but relatively muted inflation and in a backdrop of still relatively accommodative monetary policy that's led to really strong returns for most stocks. You know, it's funny that international stocks outperformed U.S., but there's this home bias that people have, and I think a lot of individuals might have missed out on some you know, even greater returns because, you know, they, they might have just kept their money in the U.S. Oh, that's true. I, I mean, study after study shows that the vast majority of people keep most of their portfolios in U.S.-based stocks. And, you know, and it goes even further than that. If there are even regional biases where if you look at the percentage of, for instance, financial stocks held in portfolios, people in the Northeast of the United States are way overweight financials. Uh, and the same holds true for energy in the Southwest and tech on the West Coast. So we all tend to want to buy what we know the best, um, but theory and, and experience prove that that's not the best idea. Yeah, I've seen that too. Like in Atlanta, a lot of people have Coca-Cola in their portfolios. And, yeah, you know, San Diego is Qualcomm. Yeah, San Diego yeah, was. It was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what other tidbits do you got for us? Yeah, you, you know, I mean, so if that was 2017. I mean, it, it was a year where almost everything did well. Um, but not everything. So, I mean, if you, if you looked at U.S. stocks, if you bought tech, you were up 39%. If you bought energy or telecom, you actually lost money. And so, you know, I think that gets back to the story of you want to diversify both globally and then across sectors. And, you know, and of course, we're talking about the past, but there's an old saying in the investment management industry that you can't eat past performance. And so we'll see what 2018 holds, because although there aren't any storm clouds imminently on the horizon, I, I do think that potentially there are a few things out there that could, could I don't want to say upset the apple cart, but could slow down what's been a rise straight upwards. What are some of those things? You know, well, one is just time. I mean, a lot of people have cited the fact that we're in the middle of the third longest economic expansion since 1900. Um, yeah, I don't give that too much credence, because although it's been a long expansion, it's been a little bit weaker than some previous expansions. But two things I do kind of have on my radar are, one is just tighter monetary policy. And so a lot of the market gains over the past seven or eight years have been prompted by the zero interest rate policy, not just of the Federal Reserve, but of central banks around the world, including in Europe and Japan. And, and we're seeing an end to that. We're seeing the U.S. Uh, central bank last year raised rates three times, forecaster for another three times next year. We're seeing central banks in Japan and Europe, although they've not started to raise rates, they've become less accommodative and are backing off of some of their quantitative easing. So I think that tighter monetary policy could come into play. And you know that, that shows out in the, not to get too technical, but if you look at the yield curve, which could be a good indicator, and that's essentially a graph of different treasury maturities and what their current yields are. When you look at that, when the difference between long-term treasury yields and shorter-term treasury yields tends to dissipate, so when that difference shrinks, that usually leads to an economic slowdown, or at least tends to forecast an economic slowdown. And that has uh, that differential has shrunk quite a bit over the last year, so that'll be something to keep an eye out. And then the flip side of that is just higher inflation. And so the, the, most market participants think that the Fed and other central banks are going to be able to continue to slowly increase policy rates and not take away the proverbial punch bowl. But one thing to keep an eye out is that we have seen inflation tick up slightly, both in the U.S., the U.K., and a few other countries. 
And if inflation with a tight labor market that we have does begin to pick up a little bit more than expected, you, you could see central banks react more aggressively. And I think that that would be something that would potentially hit stocks um, and send them to losses. So when you're looking at higher interest rates or if the Fed increases interest rates over the next year, so what would that potentially do to someone's bond portfolio and what, they, what should they be concerned about? Yeah, so I think it's important to keep in mind that when the Fed raises interest rates, they only control overnight lending rates. And so most people don't just own, for instance, a money market. A money market will see a pretty quick response to the Fed raising interest rates. But longer term, five-year, 10-year, and the like bonds tend to move independently of the Federal Reserve. And, and although the Fed will influence those, those are highly susceptible to inflation expectations and growth expectations. And so For instance, if a 10-year Treasury in a rising interest rate environment, if rates go up 1%, a 10-year Treasury would lose about 9.5% if that happened instantaneously. And that's a proxy you'll often see thrown around in the media. But I don't think it's a good one, and I think it's a lot of times thrown out there as a scare tactic for individuals that they should abandon bonds. The reality is that the average bond portfolio people own should be concentrated in short and intermediate-term bonds. And so maybe the interest rate exposure if that portfolio is three or four years as opposed to a 10-year treasury, which has an interest rate exposure of nine and a half years. And so in that scenario, let's say interest rates go from two and a half percent to three and a half percent, you're probably looking at a flat year in the bond market or something like that, uh, maybe minimal losses. Um, so it's important to keep in mind that even if interest rates do move higher, as long as they do so in a controlled manner, bond portfolios properly allocated aren't going to explode. Um, And they still continue to fulfill that role, too, of diversifying away from stocks. I I always look back at 2008, where stocks fell 37% measured by the S&P 500, and the main bond market indexes were up north of 5%. So that's that diversification you're looking for from bonds to diversify away from your stocks. Your current advisor or stockbroker is probably giving you only one small sliver of the entire retirement story. That's a problem because chances are you're missing the most significant pieces of the retirement puzzle. In order to retire successfully and comfortably, you need the whole story and everything needs to work together. You can see that with our personalized assessment. There's no cost or obligation, so you've got absolutely nothing to lose. In this customized face-to-face meeting, you'll discover concrete steps to mitigate your risk, simple strategies to convert your savings into income in retirement, how to avoid the retirement tax trap that could needlessly cost you tens of thousands of dollars in taxes, penalties, and fees, how to protect everything you've worked for from the surprising cost of health care, Medicare, and long-term care, plus how to avoid the simple retirement planning mistakes that could cost you thousands. This analysis is ideally suited for people who are recently retired or retiring in the next five to ten years. If you learn one thing in this meeting, it could change everything. Get yours by calling 888 888- 994-6257. Don't leave anything to chance. Call right now. 888-994-6257. That's 888-994-6257. Welcome back to the show. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Joe Anderson, Big Al, hanging out. Uh, we got Brian Perry with us today. He's a chartered financial analyst, a CFA. He's our director of research at Pierre Financial Advisors. So, Brian, given the fact stocks have just had a great year, and actually we're, what, eight-year bull run, and so how much more could there be? And then bonds, interest rates are near all-time lows, and if interest rates go up, bond prices go down, then it gets really confusing as to what what should we be doing now, or should we just be maintaining the course? You know, that's a great question, and obviously anybody out there with a crystal ball that has perfect foresight should precisely time the markets and get out right at the high and then buy back in right at the low. Um, I've been doing this for 20 plus years and I've yet to meet that person with perfect foresight. And so then it comes down to what should people do. And one thing that is very successful for most people is a disciplined rebalancing approach. And so, in other words, if a hypothetical portfolio was, let's say, 50% bonds, 50% stocks, you mentioned the eight-year bull market. If you hadn't touched that, at this point, you might be 70% stocks at this point and 30% bonds. So you've taken on a lot more risk at a time when valuations have increased in the stock market. And so going into a portfolio, determining what your target allocation is, and then rebalancing forces you to sell what's gone up the most and buy what's gone down the most 
um, which essentially is, it's not timing the market, but it's selling asset classes that may have increased in valuation and buying asset classes that may have decreased in valuation. And the other thing is just not completely abandoning asset classes. So I've seen too many people over the years that say, hey, you know, I'm afraid of interest rates going up. I used to have 40% bonds. I'm going to go to 0% bonds. And institutional investors and professional investors don't do that. They make, may make slight changes. Maybe they go to 35% bonds. Maybe they slightly reduce the interest rate exposure of the bonds that they own, but they don't abandon asset classes or make wholesale changes. They stick with their strategic allocation across time. You know, and the proof is in the pudding. When you look at the average investor, they're abandoning asset classes at just the wrong time and piling into the hot asset class at just the wrong time. And the result is that if you look over 20 years, a variety of asset classes, you know, the gold has been up almost 6%. Not that I'm recommending gold. Bonds have been up 5%. A 60-40 portfolio was up 7%. The S&P was up almost 8%. But the average investor across those 20 years barely earned 2%. So it almost didn't matter what asset class an individual invested in over the last 20 years. If they just invested in something and stuck with it, they would have done better than their actual experience. So I think staying the course and implementing a disciplined rebalancing approach is what the average individual at home could do. Obviously, there are more sophisticated approaches, but they become a little bit more difficult to implement. I think, too, to piggyback on that, a lot of people might need to just relook at their overall portfolio is to make sure that they have the appropriate diversification for their goals. You know, if we're telling, hey, just hold the course, you know, and rebalance, but you know, you know, most of their asset classes are, are, are not necessarily in tune with what yeah. they're. Make sure you're on the right course. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm trying to go to New York, but you know, my portfolio is bringing me to you know Guam. Uh, it, it's not going to work out very well for me. So I think maybe taking even a step further back to determine a what are your financial goals, of course, and what target rate of return are you trying to achieve, and then build that portfolio around, and then you can get into I think more of the sophisticated strategy. No, and, and that's a great point, and, and what a good time of year to do that, right? With the new year and new beginnings, a good excuse to look at, are you rebalancing to the appropriate portfolio? Um, you know, and, and the average person that we see, honestly, coming off the street, generally has too many stocks and not enough bonds for their risk profile. They tend to be concentrated in large-cap U.S. growth stocks, which have done phenomenally over the last five years, but historically have not performed as well as smaller companies or more value-oriented companies. You know, and if you look at a year like 2017, Small companies underperformed large companies, and value companies underperformed growth companies. But history tells us that's generally not the case. And so the average person may not have not just enough stocks or enough bonds, but within those asset classes may not have the appropriate allocation either. Right. And then that's going back to your point, is that, well, if small hasn't necessarily performed, well, I'll abandon that strategy at the wrong time, and then I'll go into more larger growth that have performed, you know, over the last five, six, seven years that have outperformed. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to continue to outperform. It's probably a better time to rebalance strategically to get more money in asset classes that have underperformed. Exactly. You know, and and I'm generalizing a little bit here, but if you look at institutions as as a whole versus individuals as a whole, what an institution would do in an environment like this would be that they would sell some of their large U.S. growth companies and buy some of the small U.S. value companies. What individuals taken as a whole tend to do is they tend to buy more large-cap U.S. companies and sell some of their, the few small companies that they did own. So the exact opposite of what institutions do. And you know, say what you will, and institutional investors are far from perfect, um, but they do tend to bring a greater sense of discipline and a more strategic approach to their portfolio management than the average individual. Well, because there's no emotion tied to it. It's, it's based on more of science and you know, a process versus an emotional trigger that's going to get me in or out of the overall markets. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and we could get in a whole conversation right around behavioral finance and the ways in which individuals shoot themselves in the foot or investors in general shoot themselves in the foot. But you're right. When you're managing somebody else's money, it's a little bit easier to remove emotion. You know, and that that comes back to having an investment policy statement and a financial plan, right? Institutions all have an investment policy statement, which lays out what they're trying to accomplish, what their goals and constraints are, and how they're going to get there. So that when markets go nuts, which eventually they will, even though we've had a smooth ride lately, they know precisely what they're going to do. If X happens, I'm going to do Y. It takes emotion out of it. And, and that's one suggestion to give to all the listeners is get an investment policy statement and a financial plan in place in some way, shape, or form because it removes emotion from the process. And you put that plan in place when you're calm and when markets are calm. 
And then all you do is execute it when markets inevitably become more volatile. I, I think that's a good point, Brian, because when when you think about it, the most successful investors are investing for their own goals and their own purpose and, and sticking to that path, rebalancing as appropriate. And I think a lot of us, before we come to that conclusion, we assume that the, the best way to invest is to watch CNBC or whatever it may be and, and find out the hot stocks or the hot sector and, and, and it becomes very emotional. And we tend to make a, a lot of poor decisions when that happens. You know, I, I often begin presentations. I, I've done them in offices where CNBC is on or whatever in a brokerage office. And I'll walk in and ceremoniously to start the presentation, I'll turn off the TV and then kind of drop the mic and walk out pointing out that that's about the biggest value add I have. Um, is that if people can tune out the media, the, the media is not there to help people become better investors. They're there to sell advertising and sell excitement and urge investors to do something. Um, and the greatest example of that I have is that for those that are familiar with Jim Cramer's show, Mad Money, over on CNBC, the producer of Jim Cramer's show used to produce the Jerry Springer show, which to me tells you everything that you need to know about exactly what sort of um, target audience they're going after. Yeah, but to their point, I think with everything we do, Right, Big Al, he wants to get better at Spanish and playing the guitar and being more spiritual. And no, was that part of it? No, but that's always part of it. <laughs> he wants to be, you know, Gandhi at some point. <laughs> it's, right, and you have to practice that. You have to study it. You have to read. You you have to understand things. And I think that's where people go to 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 be more knowledgeable about the market, so they're more knowledgeable about their money. But it's unfortunate that maybe the information that they are receiving is probably n- not really geared towards that type of education. Yeah, you know, you know, and you do have a point. I don't mean to to bang on CNBC too much. I mean, I think CNBC, Bloomberg, which which I think then tends to be a little bit more balanced sometimes. Right. The idea there is sound of giving people financial education. It's just what part of the process is that? And the truth of the matter is, is CNBC should be either a starting point where, hey, I saw something discussed on CNBC. Let's say it's a company, hypothetically. That's going to be a starting point for me to now go deep and to go do deep and rigorous research into more about that company. Is it truly a good idea? It's not just, hey, I heard this idea discussed. Let me go act on it. It's let this be a starting point. It prompted a thought. Let me look at it more deeply, do more systematic research. Let me see if this idea actually fits within the context of my plan. So, you know, it's not that the information itself is bad, it's how it's used. And and unfortunately, if if people used it correctly, it would be great. But I think that most people tend to see an idea flashed up on the TV screen or an idea around a newspaper headline, and then they act on it instantly without taking it into context. Is this part of my overall financial plan? And then what additional research is there to be done in order to see if this idea is sound and makes sense? Yeah, and I, th- I think a lot of people, they, they confuse facts with opinions. And, they, and, and some of these experts up there, they sound like they know exactly what they're talking about, and they're very bright people. But you could, if you listen long enough or watch long enough, in the next hour you'll have just as bright a person with the absolute opposite opinion. And that, I, think that's, I think that's part of the problem is, is people say things that sound like they're facts and really they're opinions. That's so true, right? I mean, it's especially point forecast, right? So, hey, my year-end forecast for interest rates is going to be 2.96% on the 10-year Treasury. I mean, that's just picking a number out of thin air. They've done so many studies that most prognosticators can't even get the direction of interest rates right, let alone the timing and the magnitude of the move. Um, I think having ideas and general thoughts around the direction of things sometimes makes sense, but trying to match a date and a precise level is, is essentially a fool's errand that is designed to draw viewership or readership. Yeah, so I think that goes back to your, your thought, which is have an investment policy statement for yourself, right? Get educated, absolutely get educated, but don't, uh, don't be swayed by opinions or events. That An event that happens shouldn't necessarily change your investment policy statement. I mean, if, if you retire, then that's, that's something that happened to you. That's different. But if an event happens in the world, it, you don't necessarily change how you go about things. Hundred percent agree. I mean, most of what people should act upon to make major strategic changes are life events, like you mentioned, retirement, a death, the birth of a child or a grandchild, those sorts of things. Market movements, maybe they're incorporated tactically, but they shouldn't change your big picture strategy. And, and the analogy or the example I often use is it's a financial crisis, which I think we could agree, at least in recent decades, is the most turbulent period in the markets we've seen. A 60-40 balanced portfolio in 2007, if somebody had hopped on a boat and sailed around the world for a couple of years, they would have come back in 2010, opened up their brokerage statement, and thought that nothing happened and it had been a dull market. 
right? And I think that speaks to a couple things. It speaks to the importance of proper asset allocation, but it also speaks to the importance of time and perspective, is that if you have a portfolio that's allocated appropriately for your time horizon, market movements are going to come and go, but you're probably going to be okay. Great stuff, Brian. I appreciate your time. That's Brian Perry. He's a chartered financial analyst. He's a director of research at Pure Financial Advisors. You know what? I I don't think I could have done that better myself. I'm I'm sure that you and I would have botched it, so thank you, Brian. (laughs) That would have been like a seven second. (laughs) Market's up. Dow Jones up 25.2. Okay. We're good. All right, we're good. Oh, I got this one chart, 295% since 09. Okay. (laughs) Al, what else do you got? I got Wilshire 5,000 plus 18%. (laughs) San Diego listeners, if that left you with any financial questions at all, you can meet Brian Perry and ask those questions in person. Join us for a one-hour lunch and learn on Thursday, January 25th in San Diego. Look back and review 2017's major headlines, discuss what may be ahead in greater detail, learn what the data is telling us about the economy's health, what financial experts predict for 2018, and which details you should pay attention to. Visit purefinancial.com lunch to register for this free event. Lunch is included. Hurry, this market update lunch and learn is coming up fast and seating is limited. So RSVP right away. Visit purefinancial.com slash lunch. Time now for Big Al's List. Every week, Big Al Clopine scours the media to find the best tips, do's and don'ts, mistakes, myths, and advice to improve your overall financial picture. In handy bullet point format. This week, nine things you need to know about the new tax law. So if you haven't been paying attention, we've got a new tax bill that was passed in December by the House and Senate, also signed by the President in December. So we kind of have a new tax system for 2018, so there's a few things you need to know. And so I'll go over this list and we'll have a little discussion, Joe. But the first thing is there's new individual tax rates in brackets, because before we had seven brackets starting at 10% and going to 39.6. Now we have brackets, still seven brackets starting at 10%, but going to 37%. And almost every bracket, Joe, uh, almost, is lower than what it was before. That Maybe in one exception, the, the people that the, like a like if you're married and your taxable income is less than nineteen thousand, that's a ten percent bracket. That's the same as it was before. But then after that, from nineteen thousand to about seventy seven thousand, that's a twelve percent bracket. Prior that was fifteen. Uh, and then after the twelve percent bracket, it hits twenty two percent, and then that was actually twenty five before, and so on. So almost every bracket is lower. So that's the, the idea is to is that we all get a tax cut. Now, of course, it's not always it's not necessarily going to work out that way for some for reasons that I'll go over in just a second. Uh, but uh, let me continue. Number two, and this is important: there's no change in taxes on long term capital gains. There's been a lot of discussion on whether that was going to change or not. but uh, And a lot of people still don't even really know this. There's three capital gain rates. A capital gain is when you sell a, an asset that you've owned for a year that's outside of your retirement account. You sell it at a gain. Then you get a special capital gains rate, which is taxed at either 0%, 15%, or 20%, depending upon your income level. So I've got a question for you on that. And I read a few things. So... The way I understand it, they kept it at the 15% threshold. So how it worked last year is that if I was in the 10 or 15% tax bracket, and as a married couple, that was roughly $75,000. So if I was below that, then my capital gain was zero up to $75,000. Right. And then from uh, $75,000 up to four hundred some odd thousand, now I'm at that 15%. And if I'm in the highest rate, then I'm at the 20%. Right. And so my understanding is that they're not going to use the the, the current rates, they're going to use the, the income from last year, or did they change that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And so to, to talk specifically, the 0% bracket, in other words, you pay zero tax, 0% tax on capital gains. If you're joint taxpayer and your your taxable income is below 77199 that's different than the top of the 12% bracket, which is 77401 They're almost the same. So 
for all practical purposes. Close. Think about that when you're in the 12% bracket, you don't pay any capital gains tax. And the way that works, by the way, let's say you, you have taxable income of $50,000 before capital gains. So that means you have about $27,000 of room in that bracket. So you can accommodate $27,000 of gain without paying any tax. If you have $28,000 of gain, then you will pay tax on just $1,000. That's kind of how that rule works. And so to put this in practice is what you want to make sure that you look at, because a lot of you that listen to the show are retired, that have assets, that you're living off those assets. You might have retirement assets. You might have non-qualified or you know assets outside of retirement accounts. And so now it's really narrowing in to say, well, given the fact that we have lower ordinary income rates, right? So w- what makes more sense? What is my drawdown strategy going to look like? How right. much do I take from my non-qualified versus my retirement accounts versus Roth accounts? Because that ordering sequence may change on you this year than than it changed than, than it had in the past. Well, that's that's right, Joe. And, and then it gets particularly tricky between the fifteen and twenty percent bracket because, again, it used the numbers, it used the levels that were going to be in force in two thousand eighteen if there had not been a tax change. So the twenty percent bracket for a single taxpayer for capital gains starts a taxable income of about four hundred twenty-five thousand and married four hundred seventy-nine thousand. That has zero relationship to the current tax brackets because, I mean, the right now the 35% tax bracket starts at 400000 for married, 200000 single, and the 37% bracket starts at 600000 married, and 500000 single. It has, so capital gains, they used to, the, the way they came up with that before was when you hit the maximum bracket, 396 is when you had to pay that 20% yeah, the capital gains The maximum capital rate. gains were right. That's right. Exactly. And that's not the case now. And a lot of you might have larger capital gains, let's say if you sold a, a property or if you had uh, a highly concentrated stock that had a ton of gains in and you finally wanted to diversify or whatever. Um, and so you just want to be careful to, to know where those thresholds are because they've changed. They have changed. The third one, Joe, is uh, it got a bit of discussion in December because about the uh, FIFO first in first out stock basis rule, because in the in the House plan there was no such rule. In the Senate plan, what they said is when you sell stock outside a retirement account, you have to you have to sell your oldest shares first. And so first in, first out, which means that you couldn't, because currently you can pick which shares that you want to sell. And if you're selling shares to raise capital and you don't want to have a lot of gain, you might pick the shares that have the highest cost basis. So you have a lower gain and keep the ones with a, with a lower cost basis for some other time, right? And so then anyway, so when the final conference bill came out, they uh, deleted that provision in the Senate bill. So we don't have to worry about that. So we can still do specific identification. So in other words, if you buy shares of uh, GE, let's just say, and you bought them over the years and you want to sell some, you can pick which lot, which which shares you actually want to sell so you can have more control over your tax return and, and cost and gain. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you have a lower tax, taxable income, then you might want to have uh, sell the stock lot that has more gain, right? Because then you're not paying capital gains tax on. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. If people don't realize that strategy, let's say you're in the what is now going to be the 12 percent bracket, that means you're not paying any capital gains. So maybe if you need to raise some funds, maybe you want to sell the stock the shares with the higher gain, at least to the top of the 12% bracket, because you won't pay any federal tax. Right. You may pay state tax. Like in California, you'll still pay state tax. Although it's, it's relatively small compared to federal tax and most other... I mean, California tax is high relative to other states. Don't get me wrong, but it's low relative to the federal tax potentially. So there's that strategy. And sometimes, even when people don't need capital, they purposely sell stock because the gain is taxed at zero, and then they rebuy back that same stock so it has a higher tax basis so that when they finally do sell it later, they have a lesser gain. Right. That's called gain harvesting. Yeah. That, that's actually a pretty clever strategy if right. you think about it. Yeah, you just sell it and buy it right back. There's no 31-day wash sale right. rule because right. it's a gain, not a loss. Right. Joe, another one is higher standard deduction, uh, but no more personal uh, dependent exemption. Uh, so right now, it's uh, the new standard deduction is $12,000 for singles and $24,000 for joint filers. 
This is up from about 6350 for singles and 12700 for joint filers. What a standard deduction is, is that's a free deduction you get for being a, an American taxpayer. So if you make $100,000 and you're married, you get to take a $24,000 standard deduction. You'll be taxed on $76,000. Uh, so that's now you, if you itemize, if you can itemize, if you've got mortgage interest deductions and charity and a certain amount of state and local taxes are, are allowable. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, if you have more than 24000 you can take that figure. But if it's less than that or none at all, you just take the standard deduction. So what that means is a lot less people are going to be itemizing their deductions, and that will actually make tax returns simpler for some. So here's what is confusing, is that on your 17 tax return, you file it in 18 right? Correct. So I'm filing an 18 for my 17 taxes, but let's say if I didn't pay enough of my state tax in 17, then I lose that right off completely, yeah. which is BS because I, I right? <laughs> I pay, I'm paying it for 17. Right. Well, you don't lose it completely, but there's a huge limitation. Okay. Uh, well, if you have, you, well, it's 10,000 bucks. Right. In California, your property taxes are 10,000. Your that's... state taxes are probably another 20. Yeah. That, that's the problem, and that's the fifth uh, thing, which is the there's a now limitation on state and local tax deductions, and it's this. So you, you add up your, your state tax, you add up your property taxes, whatever that number is, you, 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 you cap it at $10,000. Let's say it's less than $10,000, then you take that figure. If it's more than $10,000, a lot of people that live in California, it's quite a bit more than $10,000. You just get $10,000, which is why you probably heard people complaining in, in high tax states like California, New York, New Jersey, that this is an unfair tax bill. We've lost this big tax deduction. So even though the tax rates are lower, many, not all, many Californians, particularly those in middle and high income, brackets uh, will could end up paying more in taxes. Right. And if there's any time to do tax planning, it's absolutely right now in the beginning of the year. Do not wait until the end of the year like m most people do. Um, you know, get it done in January. Understand what you can and cannot do, what the limitations are, how the tax law is going to affect you. I would encourage you to do it now. You know, taxes don't stop when your paycheck does, right? In fact, tapping your retirement nest egg comes with all sorts of new rules and opportunities. Instead of contributing to tax-deferred plans that reduce your taxes, you'll start tapping those savings for income and paying taxes at your regular rate, unless you're tapping into a Roth IRA. So as you near retirement, tax planning becomes more important than ever. But you must use a forward-thinking tax strategy because you've got more control over paying taxes in retirement, more than you think, actually more so than at any other time in your life. Find out how you can legally pay fewer taxes than ever before with our new personalized tax reduction analysis. In this analysis, you'll discover techniques specifically designed just for you on forward-looking tax strategies to keep more of your hard-earned money in your pocket. There's no cost and no obligation, so you've absolutely got nothing to lose. Get your complimentary tax reduction analysis by calling 888-994-6257. That's 888-994-6257. Joe Anderson here, certified financial planner, Big Al Clopine, right next to me. We're breaking down Big Al's list, and of course, it has everything to do with uh, taxes. Yeah, well, that's because of the tax law change that took effect January 1st. These are the nine things that you need to know about the, the tax bill. Joe, we left off at number six, which is there's new limits on the mortgage interest deduction. And it's simply this, uh, which is nowadays uh, and going forward, you can borrow up to $750,000 on your home, and that interest paid will be fully deductible. If your loan is greater than $750,000, some of that will be limited. And the way it works, it's a fairly simple calculation. Let's say you borrow a million and a half, and all you can borrow to deduct is seven fifty. So you take seven fifty divided by a million and a half, that's fifty percent. Let's say the interest that you paid was forty thousand dollars, just to make up a number. So you get to deduct fifty percent of forty thousand dollars. That's how they do that calculation. If you have more than one loan, like some people have a home equity loan or a second mortgage, you add up both loans together and you do that ratio with both loans. You can't pick and choose. You can't pick the one with the higher interest rate. You have to average it. And so I thought home equity lines were not tax deductible. 
that's the that's the second part of this, which is correct. So home equity lines, if they're borrowed for improvements, for, but not if, if they're borrowed for improvements, they're still deductible okay. towards the seven fifty. If they're borrowed for any other purpose, they're not deductible. Because the old rule was you could borrow a hundred thousand dollars on your home, no questions asked. It was fully deductible. So that goes away. That went away uh, basically effective January first. So that's gone. So if you have a home equity loan and it was used for improving your house, then that's okay. You can add that to your first mortgage, and as long as the total mortgage is less than 750000 that works. Or if you have a second home, you can add those two loans up as long as the total of the loans are less than seven fifty. That can still work. This is, uh, you know, if you had a, the old rule was a million dollars. It's a million dollar loan. So if you had a million dollar loan before December fifteenth, you get grandfathered in. You can still deduct all that interest expense. Well, it's one point one with the home equity line. Well, it, it it was, but no longer. So they only grandfathered in the million dollar loan. They didn't grandfather in the hundred thousand dollar home equity loan. So basically, all home equity debt, unless it was borrowed to improve your home, is no longer deductible. Now you can use getting. I'm getting complicated, but you could use your home equity loan to buy rental property, and then you would put that interest expense on the rental property statement, and that would be okay as long as you could show those funds were used to purchase that property. So you know how sometimes mortgage lenders will, you know, when when someone buys a home, they'll they'll do some something creative and do a 80 20 or 90 10 yeah, yeah two loans yeah. two loans together and all of that was yeah. you know for the purpose uh, purchase yeah they call it acquisition indebtedness and that still works so i don't care if you have one loan or two loans or three loans to buy the home you can as long as they're, they're secured on the home but it's let, only now let's say if someone had 1.1 million last year then the, the, you're, you're going to lose a hundred thousand. Yeah, you're going to lose a hundred thousand uh, of that, correct? Uh, and if you get a new loan going forward, it's only seven hundred fifty thousand on a new purchase. If you had the loan uh, prior to December fifteenth, you can still deduct interest on a million dollars. Got it. Yeah. Now, one thing that happens, sometimes people get a first or first and second loan. Maybe they get a second or third loan from mom and dad and they just pay mom and dad interest, well, that that's not deductible unless it's actually secured by the property. <laughs> so, And most people don't do that. So just be aware of that. Joe, the, uh, the seventh thing also related to homes is, is there's no change in the home sale gain exclusion. A 121 exclusion. Yeah, because there's a lot of discussion about changing that. So the rule is stayed intact, which is simply this. As long as you've lived in your residence two out of the last five years, it doesn't have to be consecutive. It's any two years out of those last five. Then if you're single, you get a $250,000 exclusion. If you're married, it's a $500,000 exclusion. And that's each and every time that you, it's not a once in a lifetime. It's each and every time you sell your home, as long as it's, it's, you wait two years between each time that you do it. But I will say, because I get asked this all the time, I'm single. What if I get married yeah. a day before I sell it? Do we get the exclusion? Well, the, you a ratio of like yeah, one no, day. You don't. You don't <laughs> uh, because your spouse has to have lived in the home and owned the home for two out of the last five years. Now, if they lived with you and own, and co-own the home, right. even though you weren't married, that could still work. Uh, but no, not if they just getting married and they, they, so in other words, both parties have to own and live in the home for two out of five years. There was a discussion about that changing to five out of the last eight years. That was actually in the Senate proposal, but the final conference bill retained the current two out of five year. Oh, there's a lot to digest here. There is. And we got even more after the break. Yeah. <laughs> So, like I said, I think if there's any time to start planning, it's in the beginning of the year. Don't procrastinate with this. Uh, there's a lot of things that you want to make sure that you understand in regards to your overall financial situation. You've heard the old saw, nothing is certain except death and taxes, right? And you probably believe that you don't have any control over either, right? But that's not true, at least not when it comes to taxes. In fact, you've got more control over how much you pay in taxes in retirement, more so than at any other time in your life. But your stockbroker, your financial advisor, even your tax preparer may not understand how to lower taxes in retirement because that's not their area of expertise. The only way to lower your taxes in retirement is by having a forward-looking tax-efficient strategy. Find 
find out how you can legally pay fewer taxes than ever before with our new personalized tax reduction analysis. In this analysis, you'll discover techniques specifically designed just for you on forward-looking tax strategies to keep more of your hard-earned money in your pocket. There's no cost and no obligation, so you've got absolutely nothing to lose. Get your complimentary personalized tax reduction analysis by calling 888-994-6257. That's 888-994-6257. So we're uh, working on the list here. We, we are. We're talking about uh, the, the nine things that you need to know about the new tax bill. I think we left off at number eight, and I've got a few extra bonus items oh, to wow. throw in. That's so perfect. Hang on for a second. So number eight, Joe, is, is expanded medical expense deduction for 2017 and 2018. Because uh, in 2017, we we're going to, um, all taxpayers had to take 10% of their adjusted gross income. They could only deduct medical expenses above that. So meaning, if you have $100,000 of income, 10% of that's $10,000. Let's say you have $11,000 of medical expenses. You take 11000 minus 10, you only get to deduct $1,000 of medical expenses. So they cha- they made this change retroactive to 2017, which was it's 7.5%. So in that in my example, so it's now 7500 11000 minus 7500 So what that's like $3,500 is your deduction. So that will help some some people out. So that's number eight. Number nine, it's kind of a big one. Uh, and that's uh, Roth conversions. Although they retained the Roth IRA, they retained Roth contribution, they retained Roth conversions where you convert out of an IRA into a Roth. That's all still available. But what they took away is you cannot recharacterize a Roth IRA conversion. In the past, you could do, you could take, let's say, $50,000 out of your IRA and convert it to a Roth. And then you had all the way till October 15th of the following year, which is the final tax due date on extension, to undo all or part of it. That was called a recharacterization. And that was pretty handy because people could do a Roth conversion uh, just kind of thinking, well, maybe 50000 is the right amount. And then the following year, they do their return, and they realize, whoa, 50000 that put me in too high of a tax bracket. I really should have only done about $20,000. And so what you could have done in the past was you could take $30,000 out of that Roth, put it back into the IRA, and not pay tax on it. Now, they took that away, which means that although the Roth conversion strategy is still a great one, you're going to have to be a little bit more careful because you can't undo it. Right. I think a lot of individuals did Roth conversions. They listened to our show for years, and they're like, you know what? I like tax-free income. I think it makes sense for me to buy back my partnership from the IRA because that's exactly what you're doing. If you keep monies in your 401K, 403Bs, IRAs, all that money continues to compound tax to which is great. But then when you pull the money out, now you're taxed at ordinary income rates. So it made sense for a lot of you to at least take a look. Hey, does it make sense for me to take a little bit of chips off the table here? You know, my IRA is getting fairly large. I've saved a lot of money into this plan. And you know what? When I get into retirement with my social security and other income, I might be in a higher tax bracket or I might be in the same tax bracket with very little flexibility if I want to go on a larger vacation, if there's a medical expense, if um, the kids need to get bailed out because every last dollar that you take out of those accounts are going to be taxed at ordinary income rates. Right. So what we have been preaching and talking about and educating you for years is to say, well, take a look at it and maybe it might make some sense to slowly chip away at your big retirement account and move it into a Roth. You pay a little bit of tax up front, but then all future dollars will forever grow tax-free. So that is still absolutely one of the best strategies that the IRS has ever given us is to do a Roth conversion. It's good for them. They get a little bit of tax money now. I think it's a lot better for us because then you get compounding tax-free income. But what some people did is that, all right, well, here, if I can recharacterize, I'm just going to convert whatever. I'm just going to throw out a number, right? And then when they do their taxes the following year, they're like, wow, I didn't want to pay this much in tax. And then they can chisel back how much they converted back into the IRA with very little planning. Whatever they want. Whatever, right? yeah. yeah. So now you got to get tight. Yeah. You just want to make sure that you run a tax projection. You want to look at what do you anticipate your income to be. You know, If you're a W-2 wage earner, Right, then it's going to be fairly easy. But if I have you know, real estate income, if I'm a sole proprietor, if I'm a business owner, if, or, or whatever it is, right, or if I have variable income of any kind, 
then it's going to be a little bit more complex. You still want to do conversions, in my opinion, earlier than later. Because why we say that, let's say, what did the markets do in 2017? 20%, let's yeah, say, let's, the S&P 500. Let's say 20%, yeah. Right? So if I did a conversion in January of 2017 versus December, right? And let's say I wanted to invest in the Standard & Poor's 500. So if I did it in January, I converted $10,000. Well, that $10,000 would have grown 20%. All in my Roth IRA. So which uh, that whole 12000 now would be tax-free. It all would be tax-free to me. Yeah. If I waited until G- uh, de- uh, December, right. I'd do a Roth conversion of 10000 Well, that 20% grew in my IRA. So my IRA got bigger. Right. Where my Roth only still got the $10,000. So earlier the better, but you want to make sure that you understand and do the appropriate tax planning um, because it, it, it could hurt you long term or, or just pay unnecessary taxes. Right. Because now you can't undo it. You can't and, undo and, it. And, and I think that's absolutely right. You would prefer to do it in January. And I think if your income is steady, I think that is the right answer. I think you still go ahead and do the conversion early. Or you may, to be on the safe side, if you think you can convert 50000 maybe you convert 40000 in, in January. And then in December, true it up to another another ten if you want to, if, if you can accommodate it in your tax bracket, because then you'll know more about your income. Right. But if you are a business owner with variable income or your salesperson with commissions, commissions that change all the time, you're probably going to want to be doing your Roth conversion in December, November, December, when you are clearer on your income. Yeah. And then there's some cases where it doesn't matter what your income is. You got so much in the IRA, you need to do it. You need to do so, it anyway. So do it in January. Right. Yes. <laughs> it it kind of it it depends. So those are the nine things. I got a couple other bonus things here. Uh, one is the alternative minimum tax did not actually go away. Kind of. Kind of. It got it got the exemption got increased. Uh, and the main reason we Californians were subject to alternative minimum tax was because state taxes were never deductible for Altman. Well, now we can't deduct our state taxes anyway. So I think that's gonna it's gonna be a moot point for a lot of people. Uh, a couple more things is the maximum child care, the child credit increased from two thousand uh, dollars from one thousand and up to fourteen hundred dollars is refundable. Meaning that if you don't even have enough Negative income, income or tax, or then you still you get it as a as a refund. Uh, that kind of helps make up for the loss of the exemption. Uh, and uh, itemized deductions for miscellaneous itemized deductions, those are gone now. So you can't miscellaneous itemized deduction. You know, like employee unreimbursed employee expenses, tax prep fees, uh, and the like are not deductible. And how about this one, Joe? Uh, you can, in, starting in 2019, you can no longer deduct alimony payments uh, if for a divorce agreement entered after December 31st of 2018. If you had a divorce agreement before that, you still can deduct those payments. So, Going we, forward, you so let's say if I was married and yeah. I have to pay an X. Which yeah. I've never been married, right? And I don't plan to have an ex, uh, right? That's but a good. That's a good plan, <laughs> right? That's my financial yeah. plan. <laughs> You'll be fine as long as you don't have an ex, <laughs> so, right? And I got to pay her a hundred thousand bucks. That would be taxable income to her, and I would get a tax deduction on my end. That's correct. That's how the law was well, up until this year. Is it still taxable income to her? Uh, no. So it's tax-free to her tax-free. and no deduction for me. Yes. It's, it's treated just like child support is currently, wow. which is it's not deductible, but it's not taxable to the other side. Got it. So uh, hopefully that will be factored into divorce settlements. Sure. <laughs> I bet you the first few that happen in 2018, they may not know that. Yeah. Yeah, that would be tough. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Whoops. Whoopsies. Oh, so that's why you have to plan. Don't plan on a divorce, but plan on your taxes. All right, and that's it for us. For Big Al Copine, I'm Joe Anderson. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. We'll see you next week. So to recap today's show, tax filing season begins on the 29th of January, so make sure you've read the entire new tax law before then. Just kidding. But do resolve to talk to a professional before you file. Special thanks to our guest, Brian Perry, CFP, CFA, for our 2017 market recap. 
The bull run continues, but eventually there has to be a correction, right? What should you do? If your assets are properly allocated and you've got a strategy in place, you already know the answer to that question. If not, or if you have any financial questions, tax questions, or just need some clarification, call Pure Financial at 888-994-6257. We may even put you on the air live with Joe and Big Al to have your question answered on Your Money, Your Wealth. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com through your favorite podcatcher or on iTunes, where you can also check out our ratings and reviews. For your free financial assessment, visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Thank you.